0: You are listening to the 3CR podcast of In Psychedelia. In Psychedelia is broadcast live
1: every Sunday from 2pm. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au.
2: This
3: is In Psychedelia on 3CR this afternoon. Uh, another icy blast as well for our spring. Um, And gosh, I felt that yesterday. I'll talk about that in a tick. Thank you to Freedom of Species back next week from 1pm. If you missed something uh, on Freedom of Species, want to hear more, head to the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au and follow the links to the Freedom of Species program page. From there, you can subscribe to their podcasts, find their website, connect with them on social media. uh, And you can do that for most of the programs on 3CR, including our own with uh, about 10 new podcasts Uh, added to In Psychedelia's uh, podcast, so make sure to subscribe. Uh, My name is Nick, and on the show we are talking about drugs. All things drugs. The wide spectrum of drugs. Uh, Because drugs wouldn't exist without the plants that we uh, derived. A lot of these chemicals and a lot of the ideas... these chemicals from it's the study of these things and the interaction with our brain that's led us to all sorts of breakthroughs Uh, a lot of modern medicine a lot of the uh the our ability to counteract disease is because of our understanding uh, of these substances but i know that a lot of you will probably understand that word drugs uh in a different context because uh usually the way that we hear drugs talked about in society today is um, when referring to uh, about a list of 250 substance substances that um, are pretty much scheduled in most parts of the Western world in a similar kind of way. Uh, in Victoria, um, about half, half of those substances are steroids, so we're not normally talking about those ones. In fact, most of the drugs that are scheduled, we're not normally sort of talking about though we sort of are um i'm talking about in the the public conversation here because that word drugs gets used um often with a sort of derogatory overtone it's uh it's intended to refer to uh, illegal drugs or illicit drugs drugs that are bad and we're kind of exploring that idea of what makes them bad where that idea came from and what proliferates that idea today. The first, uh, last Wednesday was Yarra Dragon Health Forum's first evening community information session held at the Neighbourhood Justice Centre in Collingwood. A uh, collaborative conversational opportunity for people from a number of different groups to come together, speak and connect and that's just what happened. Um, it was a good collection of people just there in the foyer of the Neighbourhood Justice Centre. I highly recommend you go there and check it out as well. If you're living in the city of Yarra, um, they offer all the services of a court but with a much more... Um, community connected feel about it uh, m- much more engaged or it feels much more engaged you can go in there and, and a more friendly feel as well uh check the Yarra Drug and Health Forum Facebook page or website ydhf.org.au for more information there'll be a video um with some short segments from the people that spoke there uh later this week uh also later this week City Health uh Uh, harm reduction conference is happening Thursday and Friday in Melbourne. Uh, It's put on by the Progressive Public Health Alliance. Um, I mostly know about it. I mean, I track a lot of these things. If you go on the Encyclopedia website um, and go to events, there is a calendar there um, where you'll find a lot of the uh, conferences that are going on around Australia uh, and other days of action around drug policy or other uh, interesting events that you might be interested in so they're all on there um i will be speaking at this conference uh on uh on behalf of harm reduction victoria talking about um synthetic cannabinoids but also just the the, the sort of um pandora's box of novel uh, psychoactive substances at least the one that i've seen my understanding is that there are people that have lived through these things before um lived through these cycles of how drug policy unfolds and ends up being the behemoth that it is um but i was really curious to watch it happen specifically um, with the government trying to control synthetic cannabinoid type substances and a range of other substances and just uh, note how reflective parliament is on these issues how little uh, they even ask simple questions about these issues and how easily easily they will implement policy and implement law that has absolutely no um uh no proof no evidence they won't actually ask hey this thing that we're doing now haven't we done that before and did it work last time we did it They don't ask that question, and I was really curious to see that, so that's what I'll be talking about. Also, Listen Out uh, just happened on Friday on the grand final public holiday. It's uh, one of the first big events uh, in Melbourne uh, for the festival season, lashed by some icy wild weather at times, but also plenty of sunshine in between. This is Melbourne after all. (laughs) Significant sniffer dog operation at the gates there um, with a large police presence, including cyclist police, undercover police, the passive alert detection team. That's the sniffer dogs. Uh, Well, that's their name for it, the pad operation. And um, what may have been the new police drone unit, but it's uh, hard to tell could have been the organizers taking some promo um promo pictures or video uh it's not really clear and there's a bit of secrecy it seems around these things like where do you find out where the drone unit is being deployed do you, can you know about this is it gazetted somewhere uh channel 7 news where we're also at the gate uh they managed to spend about four hours there actually getting shots of people entering the festival and uh of people being sniffed by dogs at the festival gates uh they managed to speak to a total of one person the entire time they were there good uh investigative team there and the person they spoke to was from victoria police talking about what they were doing um in the end oh, it was about a 30 second piece on seven news that was uh, focused on drug arrests uh, by sniffer dogs and it's not even clear if uh they're talking about arrests or just charges uh, because a number of people uh, who were taken back there came back out uh, and had uh, just a small amount of um, like a couple of joints or something like that in which case they probably uh, had a diversion because they went back into the festival uh, and obviously they didn't have their two joints but really how much are we spending or how much is this festival spending uh, on this police operation for a couple of joints um there's also a bit of a problem with the the way that mainstream press report on festivals and on drug issues there were so many other stories that could have been told about this event there's 30,000 people or about 25 to 30,000 people in St Kilda at Katani Guns for one of the first big events of the festival season um and uh you know we, we get this kind of reporting but on the other hand great example um, of the sort of uh, difference in mainstream reporting on different events, even though people are kind of doing similar things, is the Swan Street after-party, after after the grand final, uh, the Richmond win grand final uh, on Saturday, yesterday. Um, Though people were drunk and blocked a road, much like a protest might do, no permission or anything, the reporting was um, largely positive and focused on why people were celebrating and how they were having fun and all that sort of thing. Tens of thousands of people flocked to Katani Gardens and St Kilda for Listen Out Music Festival braving some wild winds and rain and despite strong, strong winds closing down the beach stage for an hour later that afternoon revelers were back there basking in the glow of a warm sunset uh, enjoying some of the uh, music that Australia and uh, and the world has to offer right now. You know so many other things to say, and I think the sort of reporting we see speaks loudly to growing ideological and class divisions in this country. In the program right now, Uh, Audio from International Overdose Awareness Day Which was a month ago now Uh, It was at the end of August Uh, We had an event here in Melbourne But Ash was also up in Sydney uh, For an International Overdose Awareness Day event uh, Hosted by Students for Sensible Drug Policy uh, In Sydney Um, Apparently they were under a flight path So you might hear a couple of planes Through some of this audio But uh, bear with it It, The the planes go quickly over Uh, Who you'll be hearing from is Nick Kent Director of Students for Sensible Drug Policy Australia uh, Bo Jaco, so, uh, talking about signs and symptoms of overdose, particularly opiates and stimulants. Nicholas Andrews, who's a counsellor experienced in working with people who have complex trauma and addictions. And MJ, who we heard from um, in an earlier program as well, uh, he runs a drug safety checking service in South Africa. Um, there's a bit of strong language in this at times and people talking can- candidly about their experiences experiences with drugs. If you are concerned about your own or someone else's drug use uh, and you want further advice, please call direct line on 1-800-888-236. Direct line is confidential alcohol and drug counselling and referral. It's available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Help is available whenever you need it and never hesitate to call in a time of need. The phone number is 1-800-888-236. Here's Nick
0: Kent. Students for Sensible Drug Policy Australia, as Sophia said, um, where I suppose Australia's only youth led drug policy organisation. Um, so, in an area where, um, well, I suppose, as, as you're all aware, where we have like a range of harms affecting all kinds of communities, all of which are largely preventable through policy change, um, and the vast majority of those harms falling on young people. Um, and while that's happening, young people also being like systemically excluded from all the policy conversations. So most of you, particularly if you're from New South Wales, I'm sure you're aware when those uh, overdoses at festivals and in nightlife settings inevitably occur. You see, I'm sure you'd all be just as frustrated as I am when you turn on the news the morning of or whatever, and you see old police commissioners and baby boomers and premiers and all kinds of people make all kinds of uh, ridiculous claims about what's going on in that space. Um, the reasons for the harms and using their reasons to justify certain policy responses, which um, I learn about from a distance because I'm from Melbourne, um, but what we're seeing in New South Wales is a real rollout of a police state that's using drug policy and young people's desire to have community through dancing and, and, and art and music at festivals um, to really police um, and communities and, and like, result in a whole heap of harm. Um, so, yeah, so we um, last year we decided to really kind of start getting organised and to start doing something about this. So we were lucky in Melbourne to to get some uh, some guidance and mentorship in how to start running major campaigns, um, which is something that we've been learning about and unfolding ever since, basically. And we launched in January um, at the height of a lot of that public conversation around pill testing, um, the Be Heard, Not Harmed campaign. Um, so the aim of the Be Heard, Not Harms campaign is to be to young people where they're at. Um, so a lot of our work is on campuses and we've also since rolling out the campaign um, had a plan uh, to start getting out to music festivals and nightclubs and other places where young people gather, um, bringing the campaign to them and bringing a message that if we can get organised and um, yeah, run events, build community and have that like, focus of the campaign really targeted on getting heard by the MPs in parliament, then we can start to lay the groundwork for some policy change. Um, I remember clearly being up here last year um, called, we didn't have much of a New South Wales team at the time and I was called up to speak on behalf of young people at a New South Wales parliamentary inquiry after those deaths at DEFCON. And I was just like completely kind of flabbergasted at the fact that there were no young people included in that conversation and there weren't really any organized voices um, to be centered and to offer the truth that we all know around what's happening at these events and why the harm's happening. so, yeah, I'll, I'll pass over in a sec, but, um, yeah, it's, it's really cool to see the room, like, filled and, and, like, the amazing work that the New South Wales team's done getting the ball rolling with the campaign and the organisation. Um, and, yeah, we're kind of in the period of really starting to ramp up and get some ideas going for next festival season. Um, so, with most of our team being based in Melbourne, we've uh, started rolling out some ideas and stuff. I can tell you a bit about what we've done just briefly. Um, so we've run a, a number of like parties and we've had panel discussions. Um, we've run some training workshops for people where we've been telling people about the key messages for the campaign, which are community-led safety. So the people who are in communities are the ones that should be just like deciding the policy responses around safety and what that looks like. Um, harm reduction, so we're calling for immediate um, introduction of fixed site and mobile pill testing services. And we're also calling for an inquiry into safe supply models around MDMA and um, the recreational drugs that are being used in these settings. Um, Ending over-policing, and that's obviously particularly poignant in New South Wales. um, And empowered partying, so we're really trying to get that message across to young people that parties can be a place where you can connect, but you can also kind of build community around your rights. Um, and that um, when parties do that and when parties get more empowered, we can probably be a little bit more of a force to be reckoned with in those policy discussions. Um, so yeah, I'll throw over to some of the rest of the team. Again, like it's so nice to be able to f- roll in and see like stuff underway in Sydney, you guys rock. <laughs> and um, if you head to be heard, not um you can, we've, I've just touched up the website a little bit, but yeah, if you click volunteer, um, these guys, we're, I'm gonna be working with them over the next couple of days and we're really keen to get some more core volunteers involved with the campaign and start making some plans for what we can be doing in New South Wales in the lead up to summer. Um, to get some people, um, yeah, making sure that it's not just the politicians and the police commissioners that get to decide the the discourse around this kind of thing. So volunteer with us if you can and um, stay tuned because I hope we can really ramp things up for
1: next summer. Basically, I want to talk about overdose today and signs to be able to identify overdose specifically for opiates, um, opioids. Not really sure which way to say it. Anyway, <laughs> um, and uh, uh, amphetamine-type stimulants, um, and also depressants. Um, but yeah, we'll get to that. Um, so it's really, it's really important to know this kind of stuff because it's important that we kind of become a self-regulating community because we don't really have the trust. It seems of institutions. People really see us as see kind of drug-taking communities as. Um, as just a bunch of rabble or maybe disorganised or not really connected. And if we can show that we're actually self-regulating, it does a lot for us in being able to actually enact policy change and, and get the respect that we, that we really should have, actually, because things have become quite developed. You know, we have things like Dancewise now, which are actually government-funded. Um, not many people even know that You tell them that, and they're like, wow, there's actually government money going into you know, proactive harm reduction in our communities. And so times are actually changing and it's um, important that we actually have events like this where we're discussing signs of overdose and, you know, spreading information that can actually help people, help ourselves, help our communities. Um, So, yeah. um,
4: You all got your papers? (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) So basically, we'll start with opioids. So I actually went to Kirkton Road Center, so that's in King's Cross, so they're people that do outreach with more vulnerable communities, injecting drug users. Um, And they were doing a naloxone training, so it was for International Overdose Awareness Day, but they did on the 26th. So International Overdose Awareness Day is normally on the 31st of August every year, run by the Pennington Institute. Um, But yeah, so went there, and they were actually distributing naloxone kits. So I can't legally, tell you exactly how to, you know, inject and administer naloxone, even though, just because there's some legalities around that. But I can tell you some of the stuff they did tell me about the signs of an opiate overdose and what to actually do. And if you if you were to hypothetically administer naloxone, some things to keep in mind. So the first thing that you would do is check for danger, check if there's um, any needles, any any sort of, you know, that you're in, a, that the person who think as overdoses in a safe space, um, just pretty much securing the environment, making sure that the environment is secure. Um, so then also what you would do next after that, so I guess step two after checking for danger, would be to um, actually determine is this actually an overdose situation, is is there paraphernalia around, um, it, and this is assuming that you come across a person who's uh, maybe unconscious or in a lower state of consciousness, kind of drowsy or... Something, something like that. Something that you would expect from something related to opioids. So it's
4: good. I'll just chip in and so say yep. it's good to check what he said. The paraphernalia around the person, just for evidence of what substance they could have taken. Totally. So maybe you'll see crushed pills, which will give an indication. It might not be um, heroin. Maybe you'll see a spoon. Um, there's all kinds of indications I'd like to add as well that when we think of um, opiate overdose a lot of people seem to think that it's it's purely heroin only, now 80% of the overdoses in Australia this is a report that just came out from the Pentington Institute, actually happen because of prescription medications of the opiate types and uh, other depressants like benzos for example, especially when the person mixes it with alcohol, so that's called polypharmacy, so a lot of the time the majority of uh, overdoses and harms caused by what you'd consider an opiate would actually be something that they've gotten from their GP. So it's good to look around to see if, they, if, if there's packaging around and um, not just assume that totally. it's just heroin, for example. So Totally. Yeah.
1: totally. Um, and, yeah, so... Totally agree. Um, so you would check and see if maybe this is potentially what you... You know, you would do triage and see if it's kind of... If you think it's an overdose um, relating to opioids... And other ways you can tell, so signs that the person will have, so they'll be unrousable, or they'll be in like kind of a low state of consciousness. They might be drifting in and out of consciousness. Um, You can check their pupils. They'll have very constricted pupils, highly constricted pupils. They might have um, blue lips, pale, cold skin, so that's because of respiratory depression, less circulation, the nervous system is um, quite depressed because of the drugs. Um, And then also other ways you could... Check if they're out. Rous- so sort of ways to check if they're arousable, which is just standard first aid, is you could like squeeze them on the shoulder. Like um, a tight
4: squeeze. Like yeah, tight as squeeze. Tight as you can. I mean,
1: yeah, you can inf- inflict a little bit of pain because you know you just, <laughs> you'd rather that than not not check at all, you know. um So do that if they're responding to your name.
4: Sternum rub. Sternum rub. Finger. Yeah. So you just like rub them in the sternum as hard as you can. Um, and also, there's a little trick which I I learnt from Dancewise is that. This part of the finger here, if you press it really hard with your fingernail, it really fucking hurts. (laughs) So that's a good way to check as well.
1: Totally, totally. (laughs) Um, And so if they're not responding, then the the biggest thing that you you must stress, and they'll tell tell you this if you go to any sort of first aid courses, and it's a huge thing in Doctors A, B, C, D that most people forget to do, is send for help. They literally stress when you do the when you do the CPR if you're doing first aid courses. They will always make a huge point of you sending for help, calling triple zero, which is sending for help. So a lot of people actually forget to do that, especially when they're flustered and under pressure. There, mm. you know, you get to a point where your expertise has ended, which may, you you probably don't have much expertise compared to a health professional. You wouldn't, um, but you haven't even sent for those people who are actually instrumental in the next. Mm. steps of care Mm. so step sending for help is really important so that would be step number three um so this is assuming that the person is unconscious you're pretty sure it's an opiate overdose you want to also now uh, check their airways so this is step four checking their airways and doing rescue breathing if you know how to do that rescue breathing so
4: there might be also Unusual snoring and gurgling. So it doesn't have to yeah. be a complete silence from the person. They could be making, um, yeah, just gurgling sounds as well.
1: Totally. Okay. Actually, that's another, yeah, yeah. really telltale sign yeah. specifically of opioids. Yeah. Um, and then, so let's just say you did have naloxone. It would be at this point, um, you would you would also, yeah, you would, at this point, you would administer naloxone. So naloxone is administered. Do
4: you want administered.
1: Me to go to the naloxone bit now? Yeah, there? sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, if you want to, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think just you
4: just you it. a Um Can I get hands up of who knows what naloxone slash Narcan is? Okay, awesome. So most people. Um, so it's it's an opiate antagonist. So it helps reverse a opiate overdose. Again, you can use it with any opiates, um, pharmaceuticals included. So, people who use illicit opioids have a mortality rate of 10 to 20 times greater than non-opioid uses in the community. Pharmaceutical opiates um, pose a considerable overdose risk, as I was saying before, especially in conjunction with benzos, alcohol and other drugs. Uh, The National Drug Strategy 2017 to 2026 identifies increasing access to naloxone as an evidence-based strategy for preventing and responding to opiate overdoses. So um, what that looks like basically is making it more accessible for the general population. Um, The World Health Organization recommends that people likely to witness an opiate overdose. I I say it's something everybody should have. It's like having an EpiPen. Maybe I'm a bit... You know, I freak out a lot, and I think about these things a lot. But I think having an epipen and naloxone um, with a first aid kit, especially if you go into a party scene, especially in your house, super important. they
1: give it away for for free if you go to you know places like Kirkton Road Centre. So it's really yeah, it's sold quite cheaply at pharmacies as well.
4: Um, yeah. So it's a short-acting opiate antagonist registered in Australia for the reversal of the overdose. It is available in several formulations. So, injected, IV, intramuscular, and subcutaneous. Um, and intranasal spray, mainly in Australia, you'll find it um, mainly as a intramuscular um, needle that you attach to the vine. The um, so, it's, a, it's actually quite a safe uh, medication. It's got very few precautions. If you don't know that the person is, for sure, is having an opiate overdose, it's okay to use it. So, they could be overdosing or have had too much of something else, it's fine, it's totally safe, just use it. Um, It is a schedule three medication, so what that means is that it enables people to get it from over the counter. You can go to the pharmacy, I don't think every single pharmacy has it, so it's a good idea to do a Google search. If you want to come up to me later you can ask me, I know like two or three different ones around the inner west in the city. Um, So they are subsidised actually on the pharmaceutical benefits scheme. If prescribed by a medical practitioner or a nurse, um, it won't be if you if you go to the pharmacy without a prescription. However, like Bo said before, you can get it for free, and I'll let you know where you can do that. Um, so, barriers to making um, take-home naloxone accessible are over-the-counter costs um, for highly disadvantaged groups. So this is why I mentioned that not everybody can, you know, afford to. Um, buy it, no, not everybody can afford to, to buy the things that we buy on a daily basis that we don't even think about, so there are places where you can go, get your 15 minute training, you go through um, a, a very brief form with a health professional, you get everything to- ticked off, make sure you know the signs of, um, of overdose and, and basics of first aid, and then they will give you the free naloxone um, Some people may be reluctant to ask a doctor or pharmacist about naloxone due to Uh, Stigma, which is something that we're really trying to crush in our community. Stigma is deadly. So, obviously you guys would have grown up with people saying all sorts of nasty words about people that use drugs, um, saying all sorts of nasty things, putting them in a category and thinking, oh, this person takes drugs, therefore they're this, therefore they're that. They must look like this. That's totally, um, uh, it's, it's a total myth people of all kinds of people use drugs, so there's just, there's just no way um, that you can really stigmatise that, that it makes sense to stigmatise people because you'd be speaking about the majority of the population to be honest. Mm. Um, yes, we're, so where to get naloxone training? So I've got these coming around, um, it's got a few details of where you can go and do that. So any needle and syringe program in the Sydney local health district um, or other government health districts such as New South Wales Health. All you have to do is type in needle and syringe program in your area, and you should be able to find one nearby. You can go there. You don't need to make an appointment. You don't need to do anything fancy. Just say, "Look, I'd like to get uh, acquire naloxone," and they'll do that fifteen-minute um, give or take training with you, um, and then you know that you are savvy to use it for whenever you need it. Take it home. Oh. Oh. Someone's angry. Uh, There's also Kirkton Road Centre, which is in Darlinghurst as well. And you've got the United Medically Supervised Injecting Centre, also known as MSIC, which is in Kings Cross. Um, It is the only one in New South Wales. Unfortunately, there should be many more, if you ask me. Um, You can go there. And you can also go to the NSPs at at NUA, so the New South Wales Users and AIDS Association. All the addresses are in this paper. Yes. So the standard, oh, just some things you should know about that as well. So the pharmacist, when you go to um, the chemist, must personally hand the medicine to the customer. Thus, uh, prescription is still required if you order it online or by email. Pharmacists are not compelled to supply it on demand but must make a professional assessment of the suitability of the medicine. So I have problems with this. I think they should just hand them out like hotcakes. But just be aware that there could be a limitation to when you go there. Um, If someone's particularly difficult, there's difficult people everywhere. So the medicine can be supplied directly to the intended patient or to another person, so a relative or a carer. There is no explicit legislation, uh, legislated limit, sorry, to the quantity that may be provided or the age of the customer. Pharmacists can supply only in quantity and for a purpose that accord within the recognised therapeutic standard of what is appropriate in the circumstances. Again, so there's like a little bit of disclaimer there but um, I'd say it should be relatively easy for you to acquire. Um, and just lastly, on naloxone, there is no additional requirement to record the customer's names and/or details. So if anyone asks you, you know, uh, you know, what, you, yeah, any personal details, you're not required to give it. Um, and it is absolutely not an offence to possess naloxone. So take it to the door, keep it in your house, take it on your road trip, just just have it on you. It could really it makes all the difference in saving someone's life. And again, if you're unsure if it's an opiate overdose, it doesn't matter. Just use it anyway.
1: Mm. Totally. Um, and just also, so when you administer it, so you would you would get to the point of administration, you would, which would be the shoulder or the thigh. Um, and it, it temporarily reverses over there. So it's quite a short acting drug. So it has a half life of about 20 minutes, which means that it's just very short acting. So you would, after you administer it hypothetically, hypothetically speaking, you would um, wait about three to five minutes and then if there's no response then, then you can actually administer another dose. Like Sophia said, it's, it's not going to do significant harm to them at all if you do it. And um, this might actually bring them out of the unrousable state. And then once you have them in an it, once they are rousable, you would put them in a recovery position. So that was just, mm. from the step of administering naloxone where, we, where Sophia was just talking, we would have the person um, Who is now rousable and we would put them in a recovery position and then we would wait with that person until help actually comes Mm. because we we sent for help remember we we definitely (laughs) sent for help
4: and if that person doesn't um rouse after five minutes or so and you've got them in the recovery position um if you are trained to do so which i think it should be mandatory to learn cpr um, in australia and first aid um, then you start administering uh, first aid CPR until yeah. the ambulances get there.
1: Totally, yeah. Now moving on to stimulants, amphetamine type stimulants. So I have experience with MDMA, so that's actually something that I can really speak from experience about. I can't really speak about methamphetamine. Um, but I, I will mention some, some things about that that we can actually, thanks, <laughs> um, that we can know. Um, so, signs of MDMA toxicity, so you'll have people that are kind of um, confused, they might be kind of uh, talking kind of gibberish, they might not be making sense, um, they can be, they'll have a, generally a high temperature, um, they may even be kind of going into early signs of like heat strokes, so they'll, they, were, they were previously sweating a lot um, and now they've kind of stopped sweating um, and then that causes a whole range of issues because they're not actually effectively regulating their temperature. Um, So it's kind of interesting because stimulant overdoses have got a lot of environmental factors that actually go into them, whereas opioid overdoses are a little bit more just pharmacologically simple. It's like you take too much, the body can't handle it, it kind of, you shut down slowly. Whereas stimulants, it's, um, you can dramatically kind of to how the body reacts depending on the environment. For example, keeping the body cool um, is really important. It causes the drug to be less neurotoxic. Actually, um, there's animal models to actually prove this as well. Um, yeah. So, really important to be aware of the environment with which people are in when they are when stimulants are around and people are in trouble potentially. Um, so yeah
0: like
4: psychological oh
1: yeah and stuff. then yeah so they, they're also people might also be paranoid or they might become a little bit aggressive because they're in like a highly steeply,
4: confused yeah,
1: state yeah. um
4: vertical ocular gyrations
1: yeah Move yeah ups. the eyes the eyes as yeah. well uh, nystagmus <laughs> which is eye, eye wobbles yeah exactly they'll kind of roll back and things like that and also seizure as well seizure is a big one um mm. that definitely happens i've seen i've seen that firsthand from mgma it's pretty, it's pretty, it can be pretty shocking because you know, they go blue and they kind of stop breathing and it's, it's really intense. It's kind of like a, it's like a reset, but it's, um, if they do seize, it's important to just keep them away from any sort of uh, physical objects in the environment that they could move into in the course of their fitting. Um,
4: try and calm them down as, as, as much as possible. Don't be overbearing, but obviously try, and, if it's a party, Try and get them away from like bright lights or heavy music or where there's too many people. Totally. Offer them to sit. Offer to sit with them. Have a chamomile tea with them if you've got it on hand. Um, you know, breathe slowly. Do some meditation skills and techniques. It helps. It. it there might be way too you know roused and, and um, excitable to do that, but it's 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 better that you know what things can set people off.
1: Well, totally. Um, but yeah, so the first aid response with stimulants is. A little bit less clear I mean it depends on so many factors it depends on temperature it depends on if they've you know gone into excited delirium which is quite which is actually really a high risk thing to go into um, but if you do suspect that there is a stimulant overdose and you've kind of tried a few things to calm them down and you, you've seen that you, you, you're feeling like there is There is a danger for them to harm, that they're harming themselves uh, significantly, um, then it is best to call triple zero. But there's normally you'd be in an environment where you can, um, you know, there'll be medical services, maybe it's a festival, or maybe not though, so you need to just be aware and Mm. kind of, it is harder with stimulants, it's not so clear cut opioids, you know, you'll see someone exhibiting really clear signs of. Lower consciousness, whereas stimulants, it's kind of it, there's, a, there's a bit more complexity in terms of yeah. the response. first mm.
4: response. Um, yeah. People are, are less likely to seek for help for people who are overdressing with stimulants as well because they are awake, mm. they're not um, non responsive. Yeah, so which it's potentially a lot more dangerous because you're not seeking for that help that you need. So, if ever in doubt, um yeah just call for help straight away
1: and also uh,
2: yeah i just want to ask like what is the prevalence of like mdma overdoses here yeah, <laughs> in australia versus like hypernatremia or hypothermia uh,
1: okay well they don't uh, funnily enough i don't actually think they, they that's the annoying thing i actually I mean, i'm, so, I'm actually yeah. glad you asked that question because the way that it's kind of reported here they don't really report on those kind of nuances they just uh, kind right. of say when when say there's an overdose or there's a, uh-huh. a drug-related death yeah. at yeah. a festival. Yeah. They kind of just insinuate that it's because of drugs. Yeah. They don't yeah. say, oh, you know, it's hyponatremia because yeah. maybe if it's if it's a girl, there is actually a risk if you if you're menstruating that you have higher risk of hyponatremia when you yeah. take MDMA because the way that your body regulates fluid and salt is altered yeah. when you take MDMA. Sometimes you'll find it difficult to like urinate and stuff it's because your body's like retaining fluid and that can also lead to problems because if you overhydrate then you can get uh, cerebral edema which is mm-hmm. actually swelling of the brain and that it's
4: is yeah. very
1: dangerous and can be fatal. So it's
4: hard to tell, it's so ambiguous whether it's a uh, like legit overdose because the pill was really pure and they yeah. took too many yeah. it's hard to say if it's uh, there was an adulterant and a toxin in there and that's what actually um made the harms or the or the or the death happen um it's hard to say if the person just didn't have that harm reduction information where they should have been told look you should be having more water or you shouldn't be drinking that much water you should be going into the shade you shouldn't be dancing so much don't with this so basically what dance always does is that first one, I think one of the main reasons why people do overdose and what uh, is such a shit word for for that because there's so many nuances and complexities. Yes. So, and the media will make you believe that it's because they overdosed because they took the MDMA. No, there's so many different reasons why, which is the ones that I've, I've mentioned before. Yeah. So, always, always question, um, you know, what actually happened.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Until you get the toxicology report, yeah. you can only really tell, and they don't really tend to release that. Just. Yeah, for the record, in yeah. the Australian context, the media don't tend to go into yeah. sort of levels of complexity and nuance that should be required when you actually report on this stuff because mm. yeah, otherwise you just aren't going to get to the right solutions for the problem, you know. Mm. Um, but yeah, so okay, it's cool, it's nice. I can't really yeah. answer that question really because the media kind of sucks. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just the media, it's a problem with data and analysis and collection across the health sector overall. Yeah. I'm less familiar with. New South Wales, but in Victoria, the way it's recorded by paramedics mm. and emergency departments is different. So it's actually, there's
5: like a, there's a big data problem in understanding it more broadly. Right? Mm. So the media reports
1: it. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. It's hard to know the nuances because stimulants have these nuances, you know, it's different. MDMA yeah, has yeah. complications that aren't related to the pure pharmacological toxicity of, you know, MDMA of this substance, it can be, you know, your environment can be all the difference between someone in trouble and someone who's just having um, a good time, yeah. so it's important to, to know that, to remember that, um, and that's why actually the harm minimization practices and just having water available, keeping your body cool, um, is actually the best way, you know, prevention is actually, is better, yeah, totally, and yeah. It is, yeah, I mean in all, in all senses. My is
5: Nick Andrew, I am a counsellor with a private practice in DY, but before I um, had my private practice I worked at a psychiatric hospital or a rehab hospital that sort of treats trauma and addiction and mood disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, so obviously I'm going to talk to you guys about some really light stuff today. <laughs> so. Uh, That being the case, can I see a show of hands in the room? Who has personally been impacted by or knows someone who has overdosed? Okay, obviously sample bias because of the crowd, but that's a significant number. So uh, I just wanna say how incredibly privileged I am to be talking to you guys today, thank you. Earlier this year, I, okay, before earlier this year, when I was at the hospital, uh, every morning we get in, and I, I'm not going to violate any confidentiality or anything like that for the sake of my clients and their family. Can you guys all hear me okay? Yes. For this to be. <laughs> <laughs> so every every morning we would get in and we would read uh, the profiles of the new clients who would come in, and I was a group psychotherapist, so I would treat. They, what they did was they put the most complex needs into my room for some reason. So I'd get in there and I'd read. And, I, and one day I got in and I saw. I read the profile of a guy who was ex-military, who had punched his commander's lights out, who had gone, um, been locked up in a holding, you know, in military prison, became a heroin addict, and was coming in for treatment. And I saw his photo, because you have to get a photo taken, you know, we were reading the profile, and it, he was the biggest guy I've ever seen in my life with tattoos up to his face. And like I was terrified, I nearly shit myself. I was like, this guy's, I just don't think I can do this. Got into the room and he turned out to be the most beautiful guy I've ever met in my life. He's like, I'm done with anger. I've learned all about you know, where it takes me. And he was just the most beautiful client I've probably ever had. I genuinely had incredible love for this guy. Between uh, him leaving and sort of going back to Melbourne, he OD'd in, in a station in Melbourne and actually died for a while. And they managed to resuscitate him, and he came back. And then he came back for treatment a second time. And I, I, left the hospital. and I was just in my private practice, and he was seeing a different counselor. And one day we were going to go meet up. This was just a few months ago. We were going to meet up for lunch together. And he hadn't been replying to my texts, and he hadn't been re- replying to my calls. And I thought maybe he's back using again, you know. And I called him up on the morning that we were supposed to hang out, and his sister answers and said he passed away on Friday, you know, and it's an incredibly real thing it's it's such a real thing and the people whose lives it impact are flesh and blood real people so when when i would sit in the rooms with with these very real people who were trying desperately to turn their life around i kind of realized that um drugs aren't the problem because I started to dig, I had the privilege of meeting with these guys twice a day, for many hours a day, five days a week, and I would sit and look into their minds, into their hearts, into their souls, into their stories, into their relationships, to feel their emotions, to see how they interacted with each other, with me. And I realized that actually, you know what? It's a fucking universe, can I swear? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Okay, so it's a universal human thing to, uh, to to get high, for lack of a better word, to seek an altered state of consciousness in places like indigenous people in the, in the northern part of the world where they don't like no mushrooms grow nothing grows that they can actually use to get high with they just use fasting every culture on earth does it even the religious cultures that condemn it they use prayer and fasting and, tra- and they get into their own religious trance everyone does it it's a universal thing so the actual getting high the drugs themselves Of course they are a problem if you know I'm a heroin addict and I'm chemically addicted, but it goes way beyond the chemicals Mm. It goes way beyond that because I noticed that people would stop uh, using heroin, but they'd start looking at porn constantly or start smoking pot constantly and it wasn't about Oh, by the way, it's more than a universal human thing. I was so surprised to discover that dolphins get high as well. Mm -hmm. They pass puffer fish around and they piss it off so it spikes them. And they they all pass the puffer fish. They have like a toxin to to a dolphin. Actually, it's puff, puff, puff. Yeah, they pass the puffer fish and they all get high. Squirrels squirrels will frequently knock themselves out so that they can... There there have been biologists who have documented um, reindeer in Scandinavia eating psilocybin, and you guys know about ayahuasca, the DMT is the active component in that. Well shamans somehow discovered that if you boil two different types of things that, because we have something in our body that kind of uh, inhibits the DMT, if you boil another plant with it for like 14 hours, God knows how the fuck they discovered that, you can actually get high. But jaguars don't have that thing, the same thing, the inhibitor in their stomach, so they can just eat the plant and get high. So Jaguars get getting trip on DMT. So it's not just a universal human thing, it's a universal thing. It's just a thing that, that just happens. So it's not just about the drugs, is what I'm trying to say. You guys are getting that, right? I've been, I'll have i get off the soapbox now. It, it's, it's about more than that. The point is, if I am perpetually using an altered state of consciousness to escape my conscious reality, it's when I sacrifice on the altar, right, of, of that substance, or the porn, or the gambling, or the compulsively cheating on my wife, or whatever it is, my mental health, my emotional health, my physical, my sexual health, and that of my family and my loved ones. That's when it becomes a problem. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what I noticed was that those people, you know, we can call them addicts, but it's a disparaging term, people who are highly addicted, right? Those people, actually what's going on is there's a compulsive need to escape for one reason and one reason only. It's not that you have a broken brain. It's not that, you know, you're the, that's just you, you're just a piece of shit, you're just a bad person. It's because there's something wrong emotionally. There is, you're in so much pain that you want to obliterate your consciousness. That actually feeling, being in your body and feeling the reality of here and now is too painful to bear. It's intolerable, so I'm gonna find another way to tolerate my existence. I'm gonna drink the first chance that I get. I'm gonna hide it from my wife. I'm gonna hide it from my family. I'm gonna do it until I die, because living is too painful. Does that make sense? And And we can be even more reductive and say, that's just because there's something emotionally wrong with those people. And that's the problem with our society. I don't want to be one of these guys who just sort of talks about the problems there are solutions I want to get to them at the end okay but I feel like we're too atomistic we sort of look at every person as an island and an individual but actually I think we're more like interdividuals. I kind of feel more like I am a product of all of my relationships and the relationships that shaped them as well going right back to oh God I don't know our common ancestry or whatever it was that started the cosmos I really think that we are deeply deeply connected at levels that shape our collective unconscious and our personal unconscious mind. And a lot of the trauma that we carry is actually someone else's pain that they've either inflicted on us consciously or unconsciously. And it's sort of become like this specter, this like haunting figure that haunts our psyche and that is what is at the root of, of desperately trying that's at, what's at the root of all this overdose if people weren't in so much i mean obviously there are t- mistakes when people make mistakes and they go you know like to- they quit for a while and they go back to the same level their body hasn't built up the tolerance there are things that like that that happen but i'm talking about serious addictions that no matter what i'm not going to stop even if it kills me and the people i love at the root of that is serious pain and i guarantee you it's in their personal uh, life history and it's in their family history and it's in their cultural history and it's all there It's that sort of energy and that information that's shared that somehow has gone into haunting like a ghost like a specter I don't know if ghosts are real or not I'm open to the fact that they might be and am also open to the fact that they're not But I know that they are real in the sense that we can be haunted. We can be desperately desperately haunted, you know the parents who frequently um, beat their kids they often see images of their own parents doing that to them. They go into like a dissociative trance state when they're doing that to their kids. And it's like there's sort of a way, that, like a meme, that trauma is passed on interpersonally, intergenerationally. It's not always the family. You know, I'm not saying it's always the parents' fault. Sometimes the parents are amazing. They're beautiful. And then I go to a school and I meet a priest who takes me under, under his wing and he tells me all about God and then he starts touching me. And then he starts doing stuff to me. And and, and I have to live in two worlds. I have to live in the world where God is good and beautiful and I'm being molested. Or I'm being bullied. Or just a thousand different things. But at the root of that, that causes serious, significant damage. And it's not something that... It's not something that we can just social policy away. And I believe in social policies, by the way. Has anyone here read Johan Hari's book, Chasing the Stream? Yeah? Where, where they look at the at treating addiction. or They look at the incredible monumental cost and toll of the war on drugs in human lives. How it's destroyed Mexico and Latin America and, and parts of Asia. How like we brutalize an already brutalized population. How in countries in Europe, where they've actually taken addiction as a medical problem, like Portugal and Switzerland, and they've decided to treat it medically rather than like with punishment, that heroin and all kinds of addiction go right down, and that people actually rehabilitate. So I totally believe in the social aspect of it, in the political aspect of it, but I also think it starts here. It starts in our capacity to start to love each other, and to sort of bear one another's pain. It actually starts to be able to face our own shadow, and our own pain, because that's kind of what's driving it. And when I'm not in touch with my own shadow, my partner's right there, she'll tell you, I'm a pain in the ass. Like, I'm just a dick, you know? <laughs> <laughs> She's laughing, she gets it. But, but, but the, there's only one way you can really do that, and that's in relationship with someone who's willing to do that with us. And so if we live our whole life without anyone really seeing us, without anyone really being willing to see us, know us, sit with us, then of course we're going to seek to escape from this reality, no matter what it costs us and those around us. Of course, it's a no-brainer. It's just what we do. And I grew up in Holland. So I was telling my beautiful new Dutch friend over there. I grew up in Holland. I smoked copious amounts of pot and took insane amounts of shrooms until one day I couldn't anymore because my mind just, it just stopped working for me and I just started getting paranoid and it fucked me up. It fucked me up so bad that i spent the rest of my, the second half of my life trying to figure out what happened and how to undo it. And it led me here. So I guess all that I'm saying is, guys, I know I'm ranting and rambling, but all that I'm saying is that I really believe that to look into at what's actually driving addiction, we need to look at society, we need to look at culture, and then we need to look at ourselves and our relationships. I'm not suggesting, by the way, this is so nuanced as well, it's so hard for me to say all this because if you have any questions or upset or offended or whatever, come and talk to me. I'm not saying that if we have someone in our life who's in active addiction, that we just let them abuse us, or that we just let them. I'm not saying that at all. We definitely need to... Someone... We can't make someone get better, right? We have to wait for the person to choose to seek treatment. That's... But I am saying that if we look in our lives and we look in our story, that there's always a reason for people's behavior. People aren't just bad people. We're just people. And I'm done. (laughs) Thank you, guys.
2: I'm MJ. I've been doing substance analysis, drug checking for about the last six, seven years. Um, In South Africa, I've been lucky enough to work in Portugal and the UK and a few other places. Um, Yeah, and I've actually just come to Australia just to have a look at your guys' harm reduction strategies. I've been visiting some of the NSPs, the Kirkton Road Centre and Quinn, up on the Gold Coast. And yeah, I'm just hoping to take some of the information back to South Africa and implement it there. So, the substance analysis uh, that I've been doing has kind of been uh, focused in Cape Town, which is one of the cities in South Africa, and during the summer we have Pretty much a festival every weekend, which ranges from about three thousand to seven thousand people. So for three months of the year, we have festivals every single weekend, and um, a lot of the testing we do isn't it isn't government sanctioned. It isn't funded. Um, I'm lucky enough to have a partnership with both safe and Bang Police in the state so they've been a massive help for me. Um, so at festivals, we've been doing mostly reagent testing and thin layer chromatography, but we also have a partnership with one of the state labs where we'll do you know, analyze some substances with a mass spec. Um, and yeah, so the, the festival scene has been has been really interesting, you know it's South Africa is extremely racially segregated mm. white people make up about 8% of the population and it's generally white privileged people who are going to festivals and parties and they have the resources, you know, if you test their substance and it's adulterated or it's misrepresented you know, they can discard of those substances, whereas often in the community or other populations, people don't have the resources, you know, so if the methamphetamines got some other cathinone or other adulterants, you, know, you know, they're not going to discard their substance. Mm. So what I've really been pushing for and I really re- respect and admire what you've been saying, Lance, like getting out there in the community. So one of our programs is trying to get the testing out into the communities. So in South Africa, most of the communities were constructed with apartheid, so they racially segregated and moved people of color to different locations and pretty much for 50 years they were treated as less than human so that's been one of the biggest focuses of our testing out in the community so we'll in, in combination with the NSPs I'll go out and we'll just chat to people about substances and do some reagent te- testing and just empowering people in the communities just to you know treat them as human beings and establish that connection because that's it's such an important thing back home you know if these people have been treated as absolute shit for however many years so just to have a conversation and establish that connection with people is pretty much you know what it's about reagents are limited It as you know you can identify the primary compound but getting that engagement and chatting with people for me that's probably the most like beneficial thing so yeah i've been moving away from the festival setting that's still going on but you know i feel there's so much work to be doing in the communities and Yeah, you know, without the government's help, you know, as Lon said, we're doing it, you know. There's a problem there, we want to solve that problem. And um, so that's been one of the, one of the programs we're looking at. Another thing we're doing with the NSP is we're rolling out uh, fentanyl testing in the community. So we're providing fentanyl test strips to people out in the communities. We're giving them training and yeah, drug users love talking about drugs. So that's the best thing. (laughs) You you can sit there and chat all day. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's been really incredible. Um, it's quite a stark contrast to how things are in South Africa. So back home, what we're also looking at is subsistence dealers or subsistence sellers. So these are people who are selling their, their, their choice of substance um, you know, to fund their use. So we, we really try to look at these people and be like, you know, this is such an amazing resource and a neglected aspect of you know, harm reduction strategies and stuff. So we've been trying to establish a relationship with them where they can actually provide clean needles and stuff. So if a user comes and buys their substance, they can access clean needles, they can access, you know, fentanyl test strips. And just talking openly about drug use, you know, not having to hide behind the corner if you sell a substance. So um, it also helps regulate what substances are being sold. So in South Africa and Cape Town, we're really lucky because the community is really small. So we have frequent contact with people who are bringing large amounts of LSD, Methamphetamine, pills, everything. It's just this, it's a really like, synergistic relationship where we both benefit from it. So, you know, people who sell substances can come to us, they can have their substances analyzed, they can, you know, they can be proud of what they're selling and hopefully that it doesn't cause any harm. Um, and it's actually gotten it to the point now where sellers are actually calling out people at festivals who are selling bunk poles or are selling misrepresented substances. So it's, it's been quite a, fantastic, quite a fantastic thing to see. Um, yeah, what else? So what substances do we see there? It's quite different here. So we get a lot of synthetic cathinones. You guys don't really get many cathinones. Yeah. So, yeah, also a kind of a stimulant type substance. Um, yeah, it's pretty common because it's a lot cheaper than cocaine back home. And yeah, that's, that's on the rise. We're seeing a lot of that. In Cape Town, the predominant substance uses is methamphetamine. Like 90%, 94% of all injecting drug users are injecting methamphetamine with heroin or with other opiates. Um, the party scene is quite different. We're generally seeing like, like the classic psychedelics, but MDMA, cocaine. Um, yeah, it's interesting to see how the substances are kind of. Also racially segregated, so people of color and people in, you know, marginalized communities are using methamphetamine, and we have methacalone, which is like a quaalude, which is extremely popular back home, and we have a new substance now. Or the media is trying to call it a novel psychoactive substance, but it's a heroin-based um, product, which they're calling wunga or unger, and the media is claiming that people are smoking antiretrovirals and people are getting hijacked for, you know, the antiretroviral subscriptions or um, yeah, so that's, that's quite a thing that's going on now. So that's going to be the a project that we're going to start next year, just getting a whole bunch of samples and analysing them because there's been one study which is really, really appalling and found trace amounts of ARVs amongst a whole bunch of other things, benzos, methamphetamine, but they've latched onto the ARVs thing and, yeah, trying to develop new health and, like, wellness programs for this new drug that's, you know, it's, it's a heroin-based product. So, yeah, I think that's, that's just about... Brief, briefly, what I do in South Africa, and if anyone has any questions, you can come chat to me. And if you want to ask anything about South Africa, does anyone have any questions now? <laughs> for we can, yeah, uh, well, maybe it's a little sideways. No, yeah, go for it. Just
1: have curiosity. Yeah,
2: um, do, do you have anything that you could
1: add to explain what's happening with cannabis legalization and the Dr. couples case?
2: In yeah. The yeah, so that situation is kind of pending at the moment. So it's kind of become like the lowest order enforcement, like for police. So private use, they're kind of arguing for private use. I mean, we can all talk about like legalization and yeah, and decriminalization. But what's happening now with the legalization is that, you know, people of color. I mean, sorry, white people, white privileged people are taking the monopoly on that and starting all the cannabis shops and yeah. the cannabis things. And it's the people who've been worse affected by the prohibitionist legislation that are getting excluded again. So I have quite a gripe with that. Um, I do, okay, bodily autonomy is 100%, you know, you should be able to do in your own private space. But it's kind of permeating out into the city and into the culture now where, you know, the people are yeah, I mean they're doing amazing work and I, full on, I fully support what they're doing and you know it's been really tough. We have a few other cases, there's also a case uh, Monica Cromholt who's, they're arguing for the decriminalisation of uh, psilocybin. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure where I stand on it because mm. personally for me drugs are drugs and each drug has its own inherent risk and if you're, you know, you're kind of a proponent of legalising psychedelics and cannabis you know, the methamphetamine in users are going to be worse off, you know, mm-hmm. so I'm a kind of, you know, each drug has its own risk and I love, I have friends who are like psychedelic evangelists but, you know, in <laughs> South Africa it's generally white people, white privileged people who are using these substances and they have the resources so it's the marginalized people who are going to get actually the, the worst end of the stick when it comes to it so it's, it's a tricky topic and I don't know what the answer is but you know, the social justice issues around it are massive and can't be ignored because especially in South Africa with our history, it's pretty messed
3: up. Recorded live at SSDP Sydney's International Overdose Awareness Day event. Find out more on our social media or website at psychedelia.org. See you next Sunday. Queering the Air, up next. This has been a 3CR podcast. You can hear in Psychedelia live every Sunday from 2pm. Head to 3cr.org.au for more.